Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I am so glad to be back and releasing episodes with you again. My guest today is Greg Speed, the president of America Votes, a voting rights advocacy group and a hub of the progressive movement. Greg has served as president of America Votes since 2013, and he has held a leadership role in the organization since 2007. During his tenure, the organization has expanded its coalition to include more than 400 partner organizations, and it has engaged millions of voters. Before all this, Greg was a staffer. Greg was the press secretary for Congressman Martin Frost during Frost's two terms as chair of the Democratic Caucus. Greg also served as press secretary for the Democratic Redistricting Project known as Impact 2000. And then he served as communications director for the DCCC through the 2004 election cycle. Along with his work at America Votes, Greg serves on the boards of several organizations that are at the center of democratic politics. Those include Priorities USA, Progress Now, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. I have had the pleasure of knowing Greg for more than 20 years, and we talk a little bit about how we first met. Frankly, it was not an auspicious beginning, but we got past that. Mainly, I got over a tough loss, and I got to know Greg and really deeply respect him and like him. He and I recorded this conversation on Friday, February 24th. I hope you enjoy it. Greg Speed, welcome to Staffer. Why, thank you, Jim Papa. It's great to be here. What a pleasure. It is my pleasure. I am so glad to be talking with you today. Um, As you may know, I like to start these conversations with my guests about kind of where they grew up and what family life was like. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'd be very happy to. Thank you, Jim. Um, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Chicago and what's known as the North Shore in a town called Deerfield, Illinois. Um, A uh, Gen X kid, a child of the 80s. That was a wild time to be growing up in Chicagoland uh, with John Hughes movies coming out, you know, every other year, like filmed in our in Deerfield or the surrounding towns. That's right. Our claim to fame these days is, or at least for me living out here now, is if they don't know the town, I'm like, well, it was the last scene of Breakfast Club with Jen, Judd Nelson going across the football field. That was Deerfield High School's football field. That Go is a great claim to fame. I mean, right? Nice. Uh, so how did, you know, growing up in Deerfield, what did your parents do? What were you into? You know, how did you how did you come to find politics? Um, politics was kind of always there. Uh, let me let me start with uh, my folks. Um, they um, uh, they were both from out east. Uh, I was actually born outside of Boston in Natick, Massachusetts. Uh, my dad from Wellesley, my mom from upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region, Geneva, New York. Uh, we moved in for my dad's job in out uh, to the Midwest in uh, 76, 77. My dad took a job with a company called, at the time, Hewitt Associates, which is now part of the Aon Mega Corporation. He ran a group benefits consulting practice. He was actually one of the original architects of the first HMO. So you can wow. blame dad for, you know, all, <laughs> all that followed. Um <laughs> <laughs> but they were wonderful parents. Uh, my mom um, uh, was a homemaker for 
uh, while we were in school and then became a meeting planner for the College of Aman uh, uh, American Pathologists uh, in Northfield, Illinois. And so she started working when my brother and I um, uh, graduated from high school and uh, went to school. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, a wonderful community to grow up with. My parents were wonderful people. I've lost them both in the last few years, which is which is really tough every day, but also happens at an age where you're still young enough to be able to emulate their example and really take full stock and appreciate it, uh, all that they brought to our lives. And so it was a great childhood. Um, in terms of politics, so uh, you know, the North Shore and Deerfield in particular, this is Lake County, this is Yankee Republican territory, really. It was very Republican back in the 70s and 80s. So I, I really got into politics in some ways to be a contrarian at the beginning. I knew it was different from everyone else, including my folks at the time who saw the light eventually and, and came over uh, to our side, to our party in later years, as many folks in that community have. It's yeah. trended very heavily blue. But it was you know intriguing on that level to be a bit different and contrarian. But really, I, I was always fascinated by current events and politics. And there was one really formative issue and folks around America votes have heard me say this for years. What was the like moment of, you know, radicalizing might be a little too strong a term, but like, in, you know, enlightening was um, the issue of apartheid in South Africa. And like, I remember so distinctly when what that was, uh, that horrible policy, official racism in that country, and that President Reagan vetoed a sanctions bill in the mid 80s, I think 86. And it was actually overridden in Congress, but with a bipartisan coalition, which tells you how different things are today. Yeah. But it really, for me, signified the importance of government, politics, Congress. To I remember that vote so distinctly on the veto override. And it taught me a lot about who's on what side. Um, that there's a through line right to today in terms of the differences between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and that issue. Uh, at that time, luckily, uh, uh, for the good of uh, um, the world in, in ultimately imposing uh, uh, those sanctions, there was a bipartisan majority. There were many Republicans who joined in that. Things have obviously changed dramatically, and we don't have that anymore. But that kind of also shows to me the potential of maybe the ability to transcend this down the line. But it was that issue in particular uh, that really sparked it. And from there, I was just always, always understood what politics meant and what, uh, you know, how important the stakes were. Yeah. You know, the, it is so true that th there's a lot to love about politics and current events when you're a kid, but when you have a moment of clarity of real meaning, yeah. that, that can light a fuse um, that drives people to careers like you've had. So you, you went on to school at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, did you, were you studying politics at that time? Like, in, okay, you were. I was. I chose Madison because I was so into politics, because I wanted to go to a big, large Big Ten school, and I wanted to go to a party school. I wanted a liberal party school in the Midwest, <laughs> and there's not a better one than the Five Star rating of Wisconsin <laughs> at Madison. <laughs> Uh, so I really sought out Madison in part because of its liberal reputation. Yeah. Um, so how did you get from 
uh, Madison to the DCCC, which I, you know, as I look at your pathway, that looks like the first, yeah. you know, political professional opportunity. How did that happen? So it, yeah, in that time at Wisconsin, I did study political science, um, you know, probably one of the few in my graduating class with that degree that has been quote unquote applying it since then. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but it was really the work I began volunteering in addition to being a student and having some sort of random job while I was in school. I spent a lot of the rest of my time volunteering on campaigns. Uh, the formative one for many folks our age, of course, was the Clinton-Gore campaign yeah. in 1992. And man, I went all in, like volunteered every second I could down at the coordinated campaign office. We had the largest rally in Wisconsin history. In fact, in that documentary, The War Room, yeah. you see Carvel and Begala after the, there's a newspaper headline, What a Crowd from the Wisconsin State Journal. That was the largest rally in Wisconsin history that I like volunteered day and night for a week oh, leading cool. into that. Yeah, it was amazing. And and so I then looked for every opportunity to engage in a campaign after that and quickly saw. So I dove into a special election for the state Senate in 1993, Joe Winicky's campaign uh, in, in uh, just outside of uh, Madison. Uh, a special election later in 93, Peter Barco uh, ran for Les Aspen's seat in um, Beloit and Janesville. And what struck me was just how much I loved politics, how much I would be willing to give my time over, ultimately got sort of plucked out of the volunteers to, to run the College Democrats at Wisconsin for a couple years. But what was also noteworthy was just how different, um, how st starkly different volunteering in those off-year, very important special elections. But there were, unlike in November of 92, there were no kids volunteering. Yeah. Like the right. enthusiasm, you know, the circus tent rolled up and, and went away. So it also gave me a real sense of this waxing and waning of uh, engagement that can happen and just how different uh, it can be when voters don't really see the salience or things don't cut through as much. And unfortunately, sometimes it's some voters just see presidential elections as what matters. And we all know, of course, every election, but especially those um, uh, further down the ballot. Um, and those those elections where turnout aren't as high, each voter and each additional vote have that much more impact. And I kind of learned all that through that. They probably wouldn't have articulated it that way then. Um, but it was uh, really, really formative to how I got into this work, and then yeah. went and did some campaigns, and then the D trip, and we can we can talk about that. Yeah, so uh, I I want to return to the D trip. Um, yeah, because that that in part connects how uh, I met you. But since we're on this topic of engagement, engagement of volunteers, and and engagement of voters, I mean that is the beating heart of. America Votes, the organization that you lead. Um, is it, you know, as you began, see, I, because I know you as like a comms guy, like that's what you were doing comms when I met you and you did it for yeah. many years at a really high level. And America Votes obviously has communications as a, as a part of what it does, but it's really so deeply steeped in the mechanics of campaigns. 
is was it your early days in politics where you had exposure? You know, is that where you learned kind of the the silos of how m- campaigns really operate? It was it was that experience that I just referenced, and then many more being out on the road uh, with the DCCC doing congressional campaigns. It really gave you the sense of yeah, the mechanics, what a candidate campaign was. Along the way, I referenced that my first volunteering was on a coordinated campaign. Yeah. And I actually learned the distinct, like I learned the nuts and bolts of these things and have been really fascinated by that part of this work, um, which has been a really good fit with America Votes. We are very big, very prominent in the community, but um, much more focused on voter turnout and the mechanics of that, much more focused on coalition and coordination than communications, which was my background back then. And it's been um, interesting for folks who've worked with me back when I was doing comms on the Hill or at the DCCC. It's still like, you're oh, you've been doing that field turnout thing for how long? And it's like, yeah, but it's been just, it's really where I gravitate to. And it's... Um, my approach to politics is turnout, engagement, what is going to grab our electorate is what's going to swing the most. I, as much as anyone, absolutely appreciate the importance of messaging and effective comms, but I love this work of voter engagement, and I think well, it's the most impactful. Well, and, and in just in describing kind of your role, you've been very modest because you have grown America Votes over the past 16 years into what is today the largest coalition in democratic politics. And few people recognize just how important Amer- America Votes is to democratic politics. The fact that they've that we have won seven out of eight uh, presidential elections in terms of popular vote is no accident. It is like in large part due because of the work that America Votes and its coalition members do to engage and educate and mobilize. So let me ask you, with a coalition of that size, how do you keep such a you know diverse set of organizations organized and all pulling in the same direction? Great question, Jim. Uh, it's not easy. The answer to it, I will tie back to our days on the Hill. Um, it is part of how we have kept uh, such a large and impactful coalition together has been always making it about the component parts first, working towards the whole. What we do collectively is amazing. Putting our partners first, uh, servicing them year in, year out, keeping them at the table because it's not just efficient and impactful in the final three months of an election, but we really support their work with data, tools, other things each and every year. And for folks, just to be a little more explicit, I'm talking about organizations from the NAACP to Planned Parenthood, organized labor, state groups like the New Georgia Project or Lucha in Arizona. There's so many amazing groups. Our goal is to support what they do and their missions in all the ways they engage, and then to coalesce it all into a coordinated and impactful campaign specifically focused on voter engagement and GOTV in an election year, but the special sauce is really what we do with them year in, year out, putting, always being cognizant of their interests, of their uh, impact on uh, the work, 
lifting their brands, understanding what motivates them, their members, their constituencies, et cetera. You may all anticipate the connection to good staff work on the Hill and members who are very successful on the Hill. Um, your former boss, Rosa DeLauro, and my boss, Martin Frost, ran against each other in a race for, you know, the caucus chair. And then ultimately, you know, worked together very closely and, you know, both went on to great things. Unfortunately, Martin was drawn out of Congress uh, uh, far too soon. And but but like they've gotten as far as they did by knowing how to work with their colleagues, um, especially in that role as caucus chairman or if you're the leader of the caucus. Yes, you have to be a great communicator. Yes, you have to be have a firm grasp of policy. But more than anything, as you well know, you have to be a people person. You have to yeah. understand the interests of your members. And then that's what how you get in that position to be a good messenger. And that's how you really move an agenda. And in a lot of ways, it's analogous to what we do with America Votes with the coalition. And it's also central to what makes staffers and effective staffers and effective principals so similar. It's understanding what you're working toward, the bigger goal, and the interests of the stakeholders that you need to work with and engage to get there. Yeah. So this let's just take this past cycle where a lot of staffers, political staffers, government staffers, pundits, a lot of people got the 2022 election wrong. Yeah. You know, we what was anticipated was a huge red wave, a wipeout uh, of Congress, because historically, first mid-year election of a first-term president is very bad for the incumbent's party. The president's numbers were in the low to mid-40s. Um, and yet, we gained in the Senate, and we lost the House only very narrowly. Why did so many people get it wrong? Sure. Thanks, Jim. Um, it's true. Uh, we did predict. I, I did see what was coming. Um, by looking closely at the uh, salience of issues like Dobbs in January 6th, both with our base and with voters in the middle, but what we, more than anything, and what I think is going to be uh, very relevant to 2024 and beyond, is what's happened in the electorate in the Trump era and since. Politics were supercharged under Donald Trump. Millions of additional voters came in in 2018 and in 2020. You had 174 million people vote in 2016, 18, or 20. 174 million Americans voted in those elections. That was a huge increase over the roughly 130 million vote turnout we saw in 2016. But if you break it down further, um, 13 million Americans skipped the 2016 election and then re-engaged and voted under Trump. That group, that cohort of 13 million uh, Americans, 58% of them, our modeling indicates, voted for Democrats when they re-engaged. And then you had a huge influx of first-time voters in the 2020 election, nearly 33 million Americans voted for the first time in that last presidential, 55% of them, not quite as much as those that re-engaged, but 55% uh, of those new voters in 2020 are Democrats. So this huge growth in the electorate overall and a growth of the Democratic electorate in particular. We call it at America Votes and we employed it in our targeting in 2022, the blue surge. 
voters who came into the electorate for the first time under Trump in 18 or 20 or skipped 2016 and then reengaged. So we had a bigger electorate to work with across the country, but especially in the battleground states. So when you really dig in, as we are right now, into these voter files that have just been updated last week, for example, in Pennsylvania, we're seeing a larger electorate overall, that the growth is more blue than red overall, and that if you parse it even further, more of our surge voters turned out than theirs in 2022, in the midterm. Enough that when we were going in, we said, if this happens, this is going to be an extremely close election, coin flip. It was. But then the added element of the MAGA candidates, the Doug Mastrianos, the Tudor Dixons, these horrible folks like Adam Laxalt in Nevada, no doubt that was part of what happened. They turned off some voters in the middle, some voters that might have been gettable for Republicans, particularly with high inflation and particularly given the historical trends of a midterm election when you hold the White House. But we made up for a huge chunk of what we, of the historical gap in midterms for the incumbent party through the growth of the electorate under Trump and through our work of engaging those voters and keeping them in, especially in these battleground states. And then the MAGA element put it over the top. I personally think that since the election, there has been an inordinate focus, not inappropriately, it was relevant to the outcome, but a disproportionate, I should say, focus on the MAGA and the bad Republican candidates and not enough on what just has changed in the electorate, the potential that's there for Democrats to go get, um, and that we did in the battlegrounds. Now, that wasn't monolithic. The numbers in New York and California, we've looked at those too. They look a lot like 2010 and 2014. And what you saw in those states was what kind of looked like a, a typical midterm if you're holding the White House. But in you know Arizona and Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, something very, very different. Something that looked more like 2018 and a very good outcome across the board, especially in the Senate and statewide races. So as I hear you describe the, the blue surge, I'm reminded of a couple of things. One, that observation that you had as a college student of the you know surge in 92 and the drop off in 94 and a surge in 96, right? Um, and secondly, I remember... I don't know, at some point in the last many years, hearing a statistic that was something along the lines of if you can get someone voting yeah. like three cycles in a row yeah. for your party, you have you've you've created a lifelong voter. Um, so what can we do? And, and, you know, what are America's votes thoughts on how to get and keep people so that they become regular voters and not just surge? Yeah. Well, that's a great question, and that research is is out there, and it's pretty compelling that voting becomes a habit after two or three votes, right? So how do we keep it? Um, one, I would say 2022 was a very encouraging election in that regard, given all the data I just mentioned. What we just saw in the state of Wisconsin, um, back, to, back there, in the uh, primary last week uh, with the critical election for the state Supreme Court and nearly one million votes cast in a random February with ice on the ground and uh, just remarkable, remarkable turnout uh, in a primary. This is, yeah. yeah. So it's all encouraging, I think. And so what's the, 
to your question about how do we keep it going, like what's the what's the through line here? It is that especially in states, uh, these purple states in the battleground, MAGA's on the ballot. Voters, our voters in particular, know the stakes. In Wisconsin, we saw a huge campus turnout in this February non-determinative primary, but much, much larger turnout organically, candidly, um, because a lot of the programs haven't kicked in yet in the state in on the UW-Madison campus. Folks know that this election is about whether or not the 1849 abortion ban, America's oldest, will be the law of the land in a progressive state like Minnes- uh, like Wisconsin, uh, or whether we'll be, you know, be able to restore reproductive freedom in the state. And when things are that salient and that clear, and you can say it with such credibility, just as we could with, you want your democracy? Because these election deniers will take it from you. Don't believe us. Here's the video. You remember. And like, in the end, there was a lot of skepticism. You know, would, you know, were we focusing too much on democracy and on abortion rights? You'll remember. Yes. And those were extremely motivating to this blue surge progressive base I've mentioned. They're also motivating in the middle in terms of winning, getting folks to switch their votes. And that, if we can keep that understanding of the salience and the threat of MAGA so present, I think we're going to continue seeing this high turnout. High turnout on both sides, we should say, including in that Wisconsin primary I mentioned. But if everyone's engaged, there are more of us than them, and we can win those races. I, uh, you know, I am so when I hear you talk about this stuff, I I am so um, gratified uh, to have someone of your expertise and caliber doing what you are doing. <laughs> um, truly, um, I do want to. I, I want to go back, as we said earlier, to your time on the Hill. Um, because that's where you and I first met. Yeah. And I will confess, I did not like you when we first met. And it is precisely <laughs> because of the circumstance that you described. Well, the feelings um, mutual. It, it, well, uh, it, it's one of those things, dear listener, where when your boss is in a is in a tough race, sometimes yep. you look to the people on the other side of that race and you just don't like them. For no good reason, as it, I don't know anyone who doesn't like you, Greg. It's impossible not to like you. Um, but that was the way I was introduced totally to you. True. And so, right. Um, and a, I think as you get older and experience more campaigns, that dynamic lessens a little bit, but it's real. But it's real. And I fell into yep. it. Um, and I'm pleased that I actually had the opportunity to work with you after that. Um, your boss won that race. He went on to be caucus chair. You um, were a communications director for the for the caucus. And Martin Frost, you know, is and was known as a canny Paul. I mean, a re- really good at campaigns. Uh, he had been the DCCC chairman. Um, tell me about working for him and what did you learn about being a staffer from Martin? Yeah. Um, and I appreciate the lead in, especially, Jim. Um, <laughs> to confessions, was- Greg. Oh, right. <laughs> and I'm but sorry. I, you know, the, the feeling was mutual, but then we got right, to work right, together. And that is yeah. the nature of those things. Um, and I have a funny aside I'll, I'll come to uh, on, on the nature of leadership races in a minute. But I think, I mean, I, I, I'll go back to the answer I gave earlier on the connection between good staffing, good principaling, and how we've done our work at America Votes. Um Martin Frost uh, was very, very capable uh, politician, as you said, um, went very far within the caucus and um, 
did a lot of work uh, within the Texas delegation and chaired it for several years based um, on um, all his years on the Hill. And he was in, I mean, Martin's a, a good friend and, and brought me to America Votes, by the way, when, when he came in uh, as, as president of this organization. Um, but I'll, I'll, he'd probably be the first to also say he's not the most charismatic uh, politician in the world. Um, and probably contributed a bit to that being as close a leadership election after Martin had defied history at the DCCC in 98 when he was chairman there. Uh, but what Martin was so good at goes back to what um, I was saying. He, and I remember this so well from Martin and from Matt Angle, um, who was the director of the caucus uh, while we worked on the Hill together. Yeah, They dug into what moves members. What is, especially in the Texas delegation, giving the work chairing there and giving his work on redistricting there in particular, the give and take, the understanding of what matters to members and what doesn't and can't, you know, how do we then, um, but that what I got to witness working with the caucus with Matt, with our, with our friend, Tom Eisenhower, um, yes. like it was, yeah, it was, a, it was, those were great days, uh, but they were really people like it was being, and this sounds like so such a trite term, but people, people understanding what moves them, what and members are people too, and ultimately they've cast those votes not necessarily on who's going to be the greatest order for the Democratic Party, but who's going to put me, my politics, what I need for my district first. Martin was very, very good at that. Yeah. He was good. It was part of what brought him here to AV and understanding what moves organizations and partner groups and things. And it, it, it is, that is applicable to all this work, understanding where you're trying to go, but also the stakeholders you need to move to get there and what motivates them. Yeah. So now you're in the position of hiring staffers, yep. um, right? Hiring political staffers. So what do you look for when you're hiring people to implement and advance the mission of America Votes? Um, first and foremost, that understanding of mission, um, the ability to grasp how the role, whatever it is, contributes to advancing that mission. And I always you know, talk to um, folks about how we know it's not, this job is not going to be the course that change. You know, this is about getting to that next place. But to get to that place, you really have to internalize what it is we're trying to do here we will give you as broad. We want you to be transparent about where you're trying to go. If this isn't quite it, there's so many elements to this organization, that coalition, these groups, the work we do, that you're going to find an experience that can touch where you're trying to get. But to do all that, to get to that place, you got to do this well. And attention to detail, like staying on task, like being focused on what it is I can do that advances that big mission. But also, especially with this generation, let's say it, you've got to like be explicit about, OK, this is how you're going to this is what it means for you, too. But, you know, finding that balance and we all the Gen Xers, you know, among, this is probably not for this podcast, but like how we relate to all these folks. But like it's that those that can make that connection and not everyone can. And that's not just a generational thing. That's that's true right. across the board. Well, well uh, anyone not in Gen X, go ahead and just watch The Breakfast Club for a good understanding of Gen X. And in particular, 
Greg's upbringing. Right. Yeah. If, if you <laughs> stayed on past my Breakfast Club reference, which <laughs> might have might have been the signal, this isn't for me. Or maybe people joined afterwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you're working in politics and in government, so much of our daily effort is just chiseling. You know, keeping that focus, small incremental improvements, or just you know feeling setbacks, right, and and not making progress every day. But periodically, all of those efforts lead up to something great. And that can be a policy win or a campaign win. When you look at your career in government and politics, is there is there something that stands out as like, oh, that was really cool. We did something really important there. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, great question. I have an answer. Uh, there's nothing to compare with both the feeling I had and the pride in the work we did um, that went into defeating Scott Walker as governor of the state of Wisconsin in 2018, electing Tony Ebers and re-electing him in 22. But that election in 2018, we were having been at America Votes and frankly, having done a lot of work in Wisconsin politics, really understanding the progressive tradition of the state and how that horrible governor uh, really assaulted that tradition, uh, abused and abused his office, obviously to attack labor rights and voting rights, democracy, you name it. When we saw that the stars had aligned and after several attempts, including multiple attempts at recalling him and his um, uh, Republican colleagues who attacked our rights, um, when we saw that opening, we really dug deep at America Votes, uh, both with regard to voter turnout, to funding other communications. I really <laughs> found everything we could in the couch cushions to invest there because we saw it was doable. And when the results were coming in and we saw that we were so close and that we knew there were still votes out in, in Milwaukee, I had been doing GOTV throughout that weekend in Wisconsin, and I made a fateful decision to fly home to D.C. because I was tired, and I'm like, and if we lose this, I'm just going to be too devastated. And then to have seen it come, the vote come in at about 3 in the morning um, that Wednesday after the Tuesday in 2018 and realize that we had defeated him, it was just so fulfilling. It felt so great for the state I really love and appreciate. Uh, also, just so much pride. And when, not just America Votes, but I, I should really lift up so many of the groups we work with in organized labor, um, the Wisconsin teachers, they're, they're, the AFSCME had been working so hard towards this. And what Walker did really affected so many lives so negatively. And to beat them, and now to really, you know, maybe be restoring that tradition in a big way through the work we're doing now, it is just so deeply fulfilling and gratifying. And there was a little bit of, no, nah, not a little bit, a lot of schadenfreude in that too. But man, it all came together that night. Well, and you've, you've touched on something that really, I think people who may not work in politics don't fully appreciate that, you know, not all races are the same and not all victories feel the same. And, yeah. you know, we all want to win every race, but we can also recognize that sometimes the people we're running against, you know, they might have bad records and deserve to lose, but there is a sliding scale. And yeah. right. And when you are defeating someone who has gone after people's rights and their ability to participate as full citizens yes. in this collective we call 100%. democracy is 
important to the enterprise and deeply gratifying um, because you haven't just like won a race. You've actually opened the door to people's full participation. Yes. And we delivered some measure of justice. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a really you said good it one. well. Yeah. That's a really good one. One of my favorite questions is yeah. um, what I call in the vault, uh, exploring one's own mistakes and failures and what you learn from it. So can you tell us a time when that happened to you? You're asking me to take it out of the vault, Jim? Exactly. Reach deep into the vault oh and share with the world this moment of personal failure. Yeah, this is a doozy. And this, in some context, I, I had to think of this recently. Um, I have a good one. And you remember Congress Daily when we were on the Hill? Oh, I sure out, do. Like, yeah, yes. came out, probably still does. But like, you know, you lived and died, like couldn't wait for the AM, the PM. Yep. So I got a new, relatively new press secretary, but not that new. Like, sh- clearly should have known better is what I'm trying to say. Um, got a call asking, what's your boss's position on permanent normal trade relations for China? If you'll recall, that was a huge issue in the yes. early when, when we were on the Hill. And the yep. Democratic caucus was deeply split on that issue. That's right. Organized labor really are pushing against it. The business community, obviously very for it. And so I thought that Congress Daily was calling on one of those anonymous, like, what's the sense of the Hill questions? Yes, right. And so I'm like, oh, hold on a second, would you? I'm like, okay, we should be, I think I know, and I want to make sure we're reflecting because I think we're going to be for normalizing trade relations with China on this. So I asked the LD, like, we're, we're going to be a yes, right? Yeah. They're like, yep. And I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, we're, yeah, he's going to vote yes. And a few minutes later, she asked, what were you asking about? I'm like, well, Congress Daly was asking, I think it was for one of those, you know, surveys where folks, she's like, what? And I'm, oh. and then I realized, did I just, um, release my boss's position, chairman of the Democratic Caucus on PNTR with China on a whim because I felt like this would make sense to answer this anonymous survey. Sure enough, I think it was the PM edition hits, front headline, frost a yes on PNT. They didn't ask for any, but like it was, I love the expression on your face is really something. (laughs) Um, this is a, it's, it's pain. It's, it's shared oh, pain. Right? Oh, oh, I mean, this is so dumb. Like this is, I, I would expect an intern to handle this better. And that is no knock on interns, but I had been, I had been uh, doing like, it was so dumb and I had no explanation. I got out of it by owning up to it right away. Even before the story hit, I'm like, I think I messed up royally. Here's what I did. Um, and doing the rest of my job, I guess, well enough to keep it. Um, but I would have contemplated firing me on the spot. It was Uh, so not what you do. I mean, you know, we're all taught like if you have any question whatsoever, take the incoming, work it out with your team, respond if you do it all in a very measured and strategic way. And all of this was the exact opposite of it because I didn't even ask the first question, which is, what is this really? And yeah. then you could say, should I have even responded to that? But so it was a royal screw up. Just talking about it still gives me 
chills. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it was yeah. pretty big. Oh, yeah, it was pretty big. What did you learn? What did you learn from the people around you and how they responded? Yeah, you know, a, because right. Yeah, obviously we deal with mistakes, our own and other people's, a lot. And sometimes, you know, that thing you fear of like the axe falling is real because yeah. it is. It's a it's a real breach. Um, but sometimes it's just a mistake by an otherwise great staffer. Yeah. Um, it was. I. I they understood that. Again, being transparent, key, and yeah. their appre- the their appreciation of the transparency. It was like this might be okay because I went right out and said it, and that that was the first sense I got that I might keep my job. Uh, and then that I did move into working through what we would do, and the fact that they were willing to keep engaging me in that um, shows either that I was, they had enough respect and understanding or that they're just magnanimous. And, uh, but it was, um, I would say their appreciation of transparency first yeah. and foremost. Um, yeah. but it was pretty, as, as screw ups go, this one was, that's a big one big. Uh, because I mean, I, look, I, I totally remember that, that issue, that dynamic, the pressure, yeah. um, and, and then the added, um, point of him being caucus chair. Like it, it was yes. so newsworthy, was... right? And, and it would have been a big problem for any staffer yes. in any office to have made that mistake. It would not necessarily have been a headline. Yes. Thank you for painting <laughs> the, the full picture yeah. of this. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many layers to how big a screw up this was. And you've absolutely uh, yes. just hit on All another, right. another PR. <laughs> um, well, okay. So let me ask you another question, which is one of my favorites. Um, if I could raise the money and get the permitting to build a Hall of Fame two staffers on the National Mall and solicit nominations, who would your nominee be for the Staffer Hall of Fame? Ooh. Um, I will go with two folks, one of whom I've referenced. Uh, and another is, I think, a friend of both of ours who's been on this show. Um I'll go with Kelly Craighead and Matt Angle. Um, yes. Matt, I just talked about, um, who was really also understanding of that screw up that I just mentioned and, and you know, continued to somehow have confidence in me, uh, but was a great, great developer of talent. There's so many, you know, a lot of our offices, Rosa's office is another great example. Gephardt's, of course, yeah. Martin's. You have offices that you can tell how good the leadership of them are by how many good people come out of them. Um, and certainly both our bosses meet that category. And I would include Matt in my just great bosses um, and a great staffer to the caucus that all that understanding of the um, what really moved members and just the attention to detail of the politics. Matt taught me so much in that and was such a good uh, staff person to Martin in that regard. Um, and Kelly is just, uh, you know, I worked with her more at the DA and I know her, but I didn't really know her at the time when she was with, with Hillary, but it's such legend. Um, and my wife, um, Lona Valmoro still working with, uh, secretary Clinton. Um, she, Kelly left such an imprimatur 
on through her work staffing the first lady um, on just how that office, another great example of where so many good people have come in and obviously in the service of, of, of uh, one of the greatest of all. Um, but Kelly really set a template for the staffing within that Clinton world and, you know, Hillary's part of it in particular, that was just um, really indelible. And my work with her when she moved to the Democracy Alliance and just how she sort of balanced that principal leadership and, um, and staffer, uh, even leading that um, organization, uh, was really just transcendent. She's got a way of this work that I would absolutely lift her up in that. Uh, fail to plan, plan to fail is, yeah. I think, her. And it's, um, it's words to live by from the staffer yeah. perspective. Those are two phenomenal nominees and, and something you've touched upon, both from at the boss level and, and they both play into this, is that virtuous cycle yeah. of having a great member and great, you know, talent at the top of the house yeah. to develop people underneath and the members benefit. You know what I'm saying? Like it goes right oh, yeah. back to the top, like great staff work benefits the member. And so when it's working, these cultures produce and attract really yeah. incredible people. You really do see, you know, it, it, it's not surprising, but worth lifting up how much you see it come out of the leadership pipeline. I mentioned Gephardt, I mentioned Rosa, Martin, Harry Reid, Chuck Schumer. Yes. Yes. Like those are, you know, great leaders of those institutions that churn out so many great capable staff people. And it's no accident that you see that because it's how you get to that place. Yep. Greg, I am so glad that I got the opportunity to get to know you and work with you after our initial leadership race introduction because Likewise, you yeah. you I mean I I I truly do like you as a person, but I admire you. That's why I wanted you on the show, Greg. Um you you are top of class as a communicator, as a leader of an organization, as someone who knows campaigns and can deliver the most that our party and our voters can deliver to advance a really important set of principles. So thank you for what you do and for being on the show today. Well, I appreciate that, Jim Papa. It's been such a pleasure. I, uh, I like you too. Um, we sure did work well together and I really admire your work and, and, uh, I'd like to turn the tables, but we don't have time. Oh, you know, your incredible experience at the caucus and the white house. It's been, uh, it's been great to watch your trajectory and see you do this and, and you do this really well. This well, you are kind. Thank yeah, you. You make it's, it easy. It, you know, being anyone who's interested in being a staffer, I hope, I hope, you know, you listen to, to this interview and take what I take as well, which is it's a great and wonderful and interesting ride and a way sure to have is. an impact. So, right yeah. Greg Speed, thank you for being on Staffer, my friend. It's a pleasure, Jim. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.